Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to an episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode, I talk again to consultant physiotherapist Matthew Lowe. Matthew and I spoke on episode 7 and many of you requested to get Matt back, which I tried to start trending on Twitter but just couldn't break through the big political story of the hour. Matthew and I continue our discussion about the nature of clinical practice and how evidence and the patient can help us navigate the rocky and undulating terrain of MSK care. We also go further into the role of bias and subjectivity in clinical practice and how we can help manage, understand and incorporate the patient's values and preferences into clinical decision making. One reason I always enjoy talking to Matt is the extensive clinical expertise he brings to the conversation, the clarity with which he's able to verbalise his real-world clinical reasoning and practice, whilst also drawing upon and situating these aspects in the philosophical, theoretical and research knowledge, is both immensely impressive and engaging. Expertise such as this are something to behold and not easily found in muscular care. And I hope you enjoy this second conversation between Matthew and me. It's really just more of the same insightful, wise and clear perspectives that Matthew brings to the conversation. And as I said, do check out the Course Health book. Details of the book are in the show notes at wordsmatter-education.com. And I bring you Matthew Lowe. Matt, welcome to the podcast once again. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So this is our second conversation, and it's it's purely by popular demand that you're giving up your Saturday morning uh, once again to have a chat, really to to dive a little bit deeper into some of the, the topics we explored last time. And we had I had loads of feedback on social media from people that just really enjoyed the conversation and pretty much wanted more, and several thinking it was too short or it was cut short. Well, thank you. I mean, I'm not quite sure what to say. <laughs> Surprises me in a pleasant way. Well, it shouldn't surprise you because this podcast, of course, is coinciding by day, isn't it? By your new chapter of the new Cause Health book. It, it, it was released yesterday. Was that was that just when it got stirred up on social media? Yeah, I think it actually may have come out a few days before, but uh, none of the editors or any of the authors knew about it. And suddenly one of the editors had, had emailed everyone saying, oh, yeah, it's out. We didn't know. We, we weren't told by Springer. And so suddenly it was this great big, oh, fantastic. Congratulations, everyone. We've managed to get it done. And it's all, it's the culmination, I think, of four years uh, of conversations, discussions, papers that have been written. And I'm, you know, it's something I'm really proud of being part, a part of. And I've met so many lovely people and I've learned so much on the way. So I think the the book is... I, I, I think it's really valuable. I think someone's going to take something away from it. Uh, and there's going to be something I think that resonates for some for, for healthcare clinicians, no matter where, what speciality you work in. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible book and an incredible, I loved your chapter. And I can't wait to, to now read one to, to the rest of the chapters. Yeah. And, and Rani, Rani uh, Lilanyam, who um, led the project, and she she's done a fantastic job of getting everyone together. And uh, so, so the first chapters, the, the philosophy, and what they've done such a good job of is made it accessible. So often philosophy can be really difficult to get your head around. And what they've done is they've made the the first part very accessible in terms of philosophy and then you have its application in practice 
by clinicians and healthcare practitioners from that point on. Yeah, it's great. And then it has just, it has it just gained so much more traction because your chapter was such an easy read. I know you said to me I've had to make it write it in a way which is um, more accessible for for more people. But I really appreciated that. I love the fact that I didn't have to sit there with that with a dictionary <laughs> or, or you know Wikipedia and just just read it and 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 just not have to tr- not tr- not have to try too hard to 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 engage with it that makes sense i could it just spoke simply to me and it was it was such a nice easy engaging read which i just i soaked it up it was brilliant yeah and i think i think more just to that point i think more papers of that should be written in that way when they're geared towards clinicians because they because they just end up just residing in you know philosophy journals yeah. but they've got so much value to clinical practice and to to clinicians that if they're not accessible then to some extent they remain on the shelves yeah i I think the editors did a really good job of reining me in because they i think um, i did my first draft and they basically said well very kindly i think we need a a different way of coming about this and i learned a lot from the process but equally Mm. i learned a lot from your feedback it's really helpful well, on that note, that kind of brings us to, to one topic that we touched on last time, but we didn't delve into enough, was the application of knowledge or the application of evidence. And I suppose with that, the translation of evidence to, to patients and individual patients. And you touched on this in your chapter, that the issue, and Roger touched on this in the papers he's written in MSK Science and Practice Journal about broadening the evidence base, in, is that the, the challenge of applying research evidence to the individual patient and I, I know that's what partly is the real momentum behind cause health and the n is one or n equals one idea perhaps you could touch on that that how firstly what does it mean to what does it actually mean to apply research to a patient or a patient situation what does that what are the different ways that, that can look like yes that's a really good question and and how you phrased that last bit with what are the different ways you can apply There's quite a number of different ways so for example you so i just want to highlight a few really nice paper series that the listeners might be interested in so uh, steve camper did a, a series of papers in the jospt which are uh, really nice accessible papers with regards to how clinicians can get to grips with some of the research and then that starts to open doors about well okay well that, that now i know a little bit more about how that might apply so shout out to steve camper but uh, i would say that uh, there are different models of how you can apply it so that uh, there is this uh, idea that you could apply a funnel type approach where as a clinician you evaluate let's say an area a topic area like back pain because that relates to your practice and so therefore you look at all the systematic reviews and you gain a kind of map and from that map of what interventions are more successful than others what really do we not think works and then you start to funnel it down to well okay uh, so the next funnel is your clinicians perspectives on that and how you apply it and then at the last at the bottom end of the funnel is taking patients context preferences into account and so therefore you kind of it it represents this huge vast array of information that you now funnel down funnel down funnel down to the individual case Um, so that's one way of applying it but that but that method but that that there are pros and cons to every method and the issue i guess with that one is is that your priority one is prioritizing the research and then making it fit the patient 
And you could say, well, what's good about that approach is you're going to reduce the variation of care. You're going to understand, uh, you know, the the features of what are going to work better for that particular case, and then you're going to you're going to find you're going to reduce your risk of bias because you've you've systematically evaluated that research and you've contextualised it within your practice, and now we put the patient into that. So you can do it that kind of way. It's interesting when you said with the reduction of variation in care, and that's something you hear as a as a, an outcome from evidence-based practice, that you 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 reduce that variance, and and that's interesting in itself. And of course, but there's always going to be some variance, and so the conundrum that you want not so much variance that someone with back pain is having leeches placed on their buttocks, <laughs> and on the other end, people are getting injections or manipulation. That's that's a very wide variance of intervention. Mm. You know, that's perfectly reasonable and sensible to, to maybe remove the leeches by way of evidence-based practice. But then you've got variance within a certain domain of care or type of care, and and then you you can think, well, removing that variance too much, and that it becomes too narrow. The, the Goldilocks zone of, of evidence-based practice yeah so so i i have a different way of thinking about it and i wouldn't say that this is gold standard this is the way that i try to come to terms with it i like to think of it in with respect of seeing the looking at the patient's context first and foremost and working outward rather than ending up with the patient so what does that look like well so first of all there is a, uh, a way of being with a person to understand their situation. And so I've written before about things like an intersubjectivity, which is a sense-making process between myself and the patient. And so it's recognising the, the inherent value that patients, people bring to the table and recognising their autonomy, their being, their understandings thoughts feelings beliefs and and also reflecting on my own and what mm. i also bring to the encounter and trying to ensure that their voice is greater than mine my position is on an equal footing with them and once we understand the narrative together it's now now rather than thinking of the map of which research could be metaphorically referred to as. Now I'm walking the terrain. So I'm with the person and we are understanding each other. And then I will look to the horizon, being the research, and apply my experience with them in a way that is coherent with them. So we could break this down. So we start with Communication, interpersonal skills being at the first and foremost skill, I think it's a core skill. It's essential. You can have the map, but unless you can read the map, unless you can read the terrain, unless you can walk the journey, none of it actually happens. So we have to understand the pathophysiological rationale, the pathology, the physiology, the neurophysiology, all of that. That sits within the clinician's domain often. We have to understand the clinical research. And, but we have to make it coherent between the two of us. So there's a kind of process which I work with first and foremost people and apply and support all of those sources of information which make most sense in how I can understand mm. that other person and that person understand me. Once we gain, gain that coherence, then we apply our judgment or our clinical decision-making together. And we do so with caution and curiosity. And, and often there are system features which can impede that process. So that's things like time, for example. That's like the environment that you're in. 
that's like the guidelines and the policy makers, which are, which are very, very useful and helpful, but they indeed can limit us or have the potential to. But we should always try to, in my opinion, we should try to use that to our advantage so we can leverage system features to our advantage when we can. Can you say before that the, the, the kind of the funneling method, if we call it that, was that you start with the, the evidence, start with the research, and then funnel down to the patient and, and your judgment. And then with the evidence-based renaissance, the real EBP you know, from Trisha Greenhall and, and others, the, the mantra is kind of, it starts with the patient. So the contrast is that really EBP or the or the evidence-based renaissance starts with the patient. What is, and you alluded to it there about starting with the patient, but what does that mean practically? So, so the issue is that I've got John in front of me with back pain and I want to make some decisions with John about his care. And I've got some source of knowledge, which is called evidence. And it might look like a systematic review or an RCT. And John wasn't in that study, but there is some information about people like John, but it's not John from that study. What's the challenge of taking information from that group of people who John doesn't belong to? Yes and applying that information to make decisions about John or, or with John? So I think that's a really good question. It's about making the inferential assumptions. So it's making the inf- it's breaking that inferential gap. And I think what that, having an awareness that the research may not represent John, at least it provides a platform for you to have a conversation to John about, well, these are the types of uh, interventions that we think will work, but we're not entirely sure. So for example, let's say John presents with diabetes, COPD, uh, he has quite significant heart compromise or heart failure, for example. We know that exercise interventions are good for all of those conditions, but the way in which we have to apply it to John will have to be take into consideration those comorbidities, which may not be reflective of what those randomized control trials of exercise-based activity are for back pain, for example. Now, so in my mind, you've got kind of parallel fields of knowledge of one of which is our understanding of the clinical research and you draw from it and you say, okay, well, if there is this inferential gap, so there's this body of knowledge in research, if there is, if that, if that is not represented, uh, if John is not represented within that research, I then have to be honest with John about the, the the tentativeness of it may or may not working for John, but actually it's the best thing that we're going to do within the context of his situation. And you have, for example, in exercise, we have the added benefit of all those other systems, those mm-hmm. health systems. When I talk about health systems in, in this case, I'm on about his, his heart health, his well-being and his function. It's different forms of systems. And I'm going to have positive effects with all of those things. We're not just focusing necessarily on pain. And so I can set an expectation with John with regards to, I know you've come to see me, John, with regards to your pain. I'm going to be honest with you about, obviously, I want to try and ease your pain because I think that's going to help with some of the functional aspects and be able to participate with, for example, exercise. But what's really important to me is what you enjoy doing. So if we can centre our exercise and activity or or the changes that we can do towards those meaningful activities, I think that we're going to do that well. The challenge we've, we've got with you, John, is because of the compromises that we may have to take because of your other conditions, but I really want to help the situation with you. And, and it's, it's, that, that's how it looks in practice, in, in, in a way. that It's that ability to be able to say, 
what, first and foremost, what, where is John? What are the other system features about John, including his social context? Because it might be that he's in a very difficult social situation where he can't uh, initiate some of the acts uh, of the action plans that you may have set in place. So that takes first and foremost precedent. So it's it's about trying to think, okay, where is John? Let's understand John as best as we can first and foremost, and then we can start to build from there. And and it's and it's all about setting good communication with each other. Because is it the case that previously it was assumed? that John was represented in that. So that, that study, that RCT, just told us lots of stuff about John. That that was the assumption that there wasn't that acknowledgement that there, there were making inferences about people who aren't involved in, in that particular study is problematic. There, there wasn't that acknowledgement. And so it was just, well, here's an RCT looking at intervention for back pain. Here's someone with back pain. The RCT you know, says X intervention is effective. I will do said intervention whereas now we, we recognize that's, that's extremely problematic yeah and i would say you know any any kind of research applied in that way any any research applied in that way uh, it doesn't have to be rcts it could be observational studies cohort studies whatever it, you know it's that tendency to look at the condition look at the problem before the person so you, mm. look, you treat people as problems you don't treat them as people you treat and, and this is you know it comes down to that there's a film wasn't there about you you treat the person, you win every time. And it's absolutely true because if, if we understand the person, then the problem becomes much more often the solutions arise. Um, so so it's, it's, there are principles that research can give you, and that's fantastic. We still have to apply those principles. And it's that where the, the gold, the, the, the stuff that really makes the difference, which is the irony, I guess, um, is how it's applied. So, so you've got, um, so sure, absolutely, we do need these, you know, very stringent randomized control trials, really useful because they do tell us difference making between interventions. Like, we need that. There's absolutely no denying it. And, and of course, that it reduces risk of bias, and that's fantastic. Once we've got that data, once we've got those interventions, now we have to go, great, that these types of interventions are going to be better. These types of interventions, that's useful, that's helpful. We still need to apply it. And we still need to contextualize that information to this particular person in their situation. When they go home, where does the magic happen? It doesn't happen in the clinic room. It happens when they leave the clinic room. So where are they going? What's the support that they have? What environment, what situation and circumstances are they going to? Where they're going to be engaging within the therapy, the active self-management, what is that like? And and all of those steps need to be taken into account. And really, to, to be able to see John in that study or or that piece of evidence, we need to, as you said, understand John. And we need and to, to be able to contextualize. To what extent does this evidence apply to this individual person? Yeah, I would say so because what you've got is you've got you've got you can't do it all at once because there's too much evidence. That's <laughs> too much research evidence. What you do, what I do, is try and conceive of the relative themes which may be pertinent to musculoskeletal conditions. So let's, and this is where I think you could probably break out a biopsychosocial model. And although it's used quite useful in a explanatory paradigm as separate entities, we know that it isn't. And it's mm. the interrelationship and the dynamic systems theory that's, that brings all of that together. But in terms of explanation, what we can do is we can pull from the research into those three kind of paradigms, those three concepts rather, 
and say, okay, well, or constructs, I can bring the biological constructs and say, okay, instability, for example, and we can we could break down the instability construct and we can argue the twos and fro's of that. We could then break down some of the themes of the psychological domains in musculoskeletal uh, complaints. Let's say, for example, fear avoidance and the impact of fear avoidance, exposure-based treatments versus graded activity treatments, for example. And then we can draw from the social, which is, again, I would say huge and vast and probably one domain that I can't speak for other physical therapists, but personally for physiotherapists, including myself, we would do a lot, uh, we could do a lot better looking into that domain but you you can see that there are themes from the research that you can apply to your practice and think okay well i've got these themes but they're sitting out here as i say it's almost like they're in the horizon which ones which aspects do we think john is going to help his situation when we navigate the terrain in front of us what direction should we go so so it's it's almost like bi-directional it's you've got you've got these themes which come from the research you've got john and everything about john and then there's a meeting toward where John heads towards this navigation of, of, of the terrain around him. And so maybe you can speak about your vector model, which you talked about in your papers, and I think a little bit in your chapter two. And I remember listening to a podcast with, with Greg Lehman the other week when I think he alludes to the same kind of thing that, that you've got these range of different factors, dispositions, I suppose, mm. and we haven't got to change them all. <laughs> But we just got to change enough to to bring that vector back. Sitting down with John and saying these are some of the factors that we've identified through our conversation. This is kind of what some of the research says about some of those factors, and this is the the perspective they give on some of those fact on those factors in relation to to your situation. And then you kind of lay them out on the table a bit, don't you? And say you know which which sorts of things do you think you could address first or might be easiest for you or you know where what do you think about these factors he might say well i can't do the exercise i've got no gym but what i can do i can kind of i don't know tidy up my diet or there might be some you know some kind of negotiation and which you're placing some of that choice with him yeah absolutely so um i think there has to be a sense making process and often i try and i do i do use my maps quite a bit although i'm very careful about how i apply that or who i think it might be useful for and who not um but often the the, the kieran o'sullivan test or the the talk back <laughs> that kieran o'sullivan does is amazing he, he basically describes what places or rather talks through the situation that the, john has so can i just check with you john i just want to make sure i haven't missed anything and then talk through the history talk through and from my physical examination findings it's this and this blah blah blah. and then you come to the end of so this is what i think is happening these are the types of things i think we, we, we do and hopefully john understands it and then you say so if you were to go home today and you were trying to explain that to your sister or your wife or whatever how how would you explain what i've just explained to you and that's a humbling experience when you get some yeah. responses back from that so, so, so there has to be some kind of sense-making process, and and just because they can't necessarily put it into words, it doesn't mean that they don't understand it. So, so John might say, "Oh gosh, you know, uh, I I know what you're saying, but I I find it very difficult to verbalise." They wouldn't even necessarily have the, the words to say that, even if they get a really good sense of it. But by putting it down into a mind map, it becomes something that's uh, a little bit more mouldable, and there's permission to change it, so that. So these relevant factors, relevant for John, his comorbidities or his, his circumstances, his social situation, had the narrative or the timeline of his 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 complaint, where all of those factors fit, 
within a mind map, it's something, that, and John's got permission to walk away with that and go, okay, well, I'm, I don't, I'm not quite sure if that's quite right, but you know, mm. and he might roll with it or, or whatever. But you apply, it's that sense making process that's really important. And then with the vector model, there, uh, which again, I don't necessarily use with, with, with all patients, it's a clinical reasoning process for me. And I share it with the patients as a way, again, to try and make sense of the situation where there are dispositional powers or there are dispositions toward or against the manifestation of this current situation as a whole. And there are certain dispositions which are tending toward and away. And uh, there are certain that there, are, there is a co-constructed belief about the strength of those, of those dispositions and the direction that they're going in. And there's also an acknowledgement that each of those factors interact with each other and therefore in themselves create a different context. So Greg Lehman's lovely cup analogy is it's fantastic, and it describes how you could add all of these causal factors up, and it will hit a threshold, which is the top of the cup. And then if you any more comes in, it will spill. Um, so what we want to try and do is take away some of those things, or, mm. or we get you another cup. So we either increase your capacity, so your cup gets bigger, or we try to reduce the things that are inside your cup. And those things might include things like stress, poor sleep, your diet, you know, physical activity, relationships, all those kind of things. The the difference, the difference I think the vector model has is, is that it is a recognition that all of those factors interrelate. Whereas the cup, there is no understanding of mixing of those causal factors. So it, they're seen as these distinct things that stack up whereas my an analogy which you could still fit in the cup analogy is is that net well we can describe these as distinct things but actually now we've mixed them all together they're inseparable and they've now they've they've created a bubbling effect and now they're spilling over um so again you can still use the same metaphor but for me it's the interrelationship between those causal factors as opposed to seeing them as distinct from each other and do I need to know how they relate? I mean, is it because there's the, the, the interaction is so infinite in a way? I mean, there's just there's just an infinite number of possibilities how these different would these different factors would collide and influence each other. As a clinician, you, you might just be thinking this is all just so complex. Like, how am I going to bend my head around this stuff? How do I know what's affecting what and what what's factors nudging what? Is is just acknowledging that these are that these factors do interact and do overlap is sufficient. No, well, I think it also might provide some explanation as to why best-meaning programs don't necessarily give you the results that you want um, mm. because of unexpected outcomes. So, for example, we can have this lovely plan. Let's use the cup analogy. And these are the identified causal factors. You've worked at those things. You're still not getting better. Well, what then? Is it because the cup analogy is wrong? No, the cup analogy is probably correct. But the relationship between all of those situations and circumstances are not recognizing the interrelationship and that needs to overcome. So there may be other things that need to happen. So and the other the other thing is surprisal. So we've all treated people and thought, crikey, you know, we were expecting good prognosis. We we're expecting this all to go well. Uh, the patients applying themselves really well to the process and the plan. Um, we're getting good within and out of session changes. And then something happens out of the blue, and there is a surprise. There's something unexpected that happens. How do you explain that in the cup analogy? 
they, their stress hasn't gone up, their situation's concerned, you know, their sleep patterns haven't changed, but we get surprisals. And that's because this is a complex system and the cup analogy is a great metaphor for explanation, but it doesn't, it doesn't explain those, those phenomena, whereas I think the vector model does. I think, I think thinking of it in that way, it explains the complex interrelationships, the context sensitivity, in other words, the situation, circumstances, and the, the processes that are happening at that time in that situation, mm. in that place, and the, and the potential uh, surprisals that happen as a result. I mean, there are cases, aren't there? I'm sure, Ollie, in your practice, where you've treated someone thinking, this person's got a really poor prognosis. I'm not sure what the heck I'm doing. And there's something, the interaction or something's happened unexpected. And they've come back to you and said, wow, you know, things have just worked out. I'm doing really, really well. Yeah. I, I, I never know what I'm doing in clinical practice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that. And in terms of, in terms of, so a few times you said about reducing bias, and I think we're just going back a bit. And I think you were talking about in, I wasn't sure if you meant bias in terms of research, or, and that makes complete sense. Reducing bias in a in a study or a quantitative study whose main premise is to be objective, the main position is to, to to obtain the truth. But then I wasn't sure if you were also talking about reducing bias on the part of the the clinician, and whether or not research. The role of research is to reduce bias or to, and I'm probably answering the question for you, but to, to get us to reflect on the potential sources of bias. But whenever you I hear that, I, that I always get the idea that it's trying to nudge us towards being objective. It's about still recognising that clinical practice is, is subjective and we're not trying to be more objective, but rather build in strategies to our, into our reasoning and practice that we're reflexive into some of our kind of a priori beliefs and, and perceptions yeah. and experiences. Yeah. So this is this is the conundrum that clinical practice is, surrounds. It's this first person perspective, the subjective experience, and the third person perspective, the view of reality through making use of your senses. But I am a I am a subject and object, as are you, Ollie. And so so I think what and this is what qualitative and quantitative research if you could if perhaps we could view it this way and i'm just going to talk as i make sense of it myself if we uh, think of qualitative research as a way as a doorway toward the first person and quantitative research as a doorway or a lens towards the third person it is the marrying of the two that creates the most sense in clinical practice so it's a so the the use of bias has to both apply to the clinician, to the patient, to all of the agents involved in the therapeutic process together, and also the research. So it's not one or the other. There are bias because people who do the research are human. They're going to have their own biases. And what they're trying to do is control for that, which makes absolute sense. And it, sh and it should be done. But we should still acknowledge it. It still exists. Uh, and we should ex uh, express our conflicts of interest. As a clinician, there are tendencies to orientate ourselves toward the research that resonates with us the most. That is in itself a form of bias. And recognising that means that perhaps we should walk toward and away from the research that resonates with us, both within our field and outside of our fields. And then when we discuss things with patients, 
we need to recognize their perspective and why they have their perspectives and understand and come to terms with that. And it's them that derive the situation and context. They are the, the deliverers, should we say, mm. of, the, uh, of, the, of the context of which we should have the psychological and social flexibility to work with it. Because bias can be really helpful. I mean, in, in qualitative research, you rely on the, the nose of the researcher to that theoretical sense that this seems, you've got that kind of intuitive sense that this seems really important or there's something here yeah. amongst this data which I'm just going to pursue analytically perhaps and, and collect more data or take a particular stance on your analysis. And that intu- intuition or that that form of reasoning is based on is based on your experience is based on a whole load of things about you and your knowledge and your assumptions and you use that as a strength if you like to get an insight and to get some kind of analytical leverage of your data and i would say the same with but of course bias can be completely can take you off the wrong track and you you just everything looks how you want it to look and i suppose it's quite interesting what to do with that what to do with this bias that we have that we want to use it productively and therapeutically and effectively for the patient so it seems like we want our cake and we want to eat we want bias we don't want it in a bad way because we don't want to just walk towards the you know things that we that confirms our bias but at the same time we just get rid of bias we're missing we're going to lose something of course this you couldn't get rid of bias but you know if we were all just robots performing interventions it would that would be a quite a different situation yeah. So, you know, it, clinical practice does not live in a, in a kind of philosophical vacuum. The researchers, their perspectives do not live in a vil- philosophical vacuum. The data will not explain itself. It has to be interpreted. So by, by which virtue, being explicit and just reflective on, the, on your philosophical view of the world is really, is really useful. Mm. comes out in the first book chapter of, by the way, in the course, huh? plug. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but essentially, so, so if you, I think it, it, for, for me, I think going back to Roger Kerry's paper, it's there is something to be said for controlling of the data to ensure that it is as you know, I can understand where, where people would want to reduce the value ladenness of the data as much as possible. But through the interpretation of the data, it immediately takes on value depending on how you're going to apply it. And I think it's the bridging between the two things, and this is another example of the first-person and third-person perspective, is is that we have to have the balance of both, and we have to recognise the limitations of both. So as a clinician, the quantitative data is really useful to answer specific things. But should it take priority over the care of individual persons, depend in a therapeutic context within physical therapy above and beyond the person in front of me i have to prioritize something i can't just do everything all at once but you can bring everything together and emphasize mm. some things over others and so there is a choice so the risk of emphasizing uh, let's say you know the interpretation i'm going to make it a bit trivial just to explain it but if I were to say, look, no, we've got to do strengthening exercises for everybody with shoulder pain. And you could say, OK, well, that works for the majority of people with shoulder pain. But actually, there are particular cases where strengthening exercises make the situation worse. Uh, and that might be because they have shoulder pain, but they may have pain mechanism features 
which actually mean that their exercise-induced hypoalgesic, me hypoalgesic mechanisms are inhibited. And so exercise becomes a painful intervention. Uh, and in that painful intervention, their function is getting worse. So it's if you apply this kind of one direction of, well, the research tells us what to do, uh, or rather directs us, um, and we don't have that ability to that reflexivity to be able to contextualize it within this particular case, then you're going to fall on short. You're going to fall short. Whereas if you understand the person's context first, including the pain mechanisms, understand the potential uh, pain mechanism, this all comes down to your clinical reasoning, then you can apply the research data to that situation in a much more coherent fashion. So, uh, so, so you may... Their, their pain mechanism may have to be explained better once you've gained a therapeutic relationship and they've come to terms to understanding the situation. You can talk mm. through the pitfalls of doing exercise activities too quickly and that in their particular situation, we may need to apply it in a different way. And the exercise for that particular person doesn't have to be strength. It could be something completely different. It could be to do with much more their meaningful activities, for example. Yeah, yeah. So it's about it's about just that aware awareness that we have biases, and just in the in the that kind of reflection in action or on action in that in the moment. You know, how how am I? How is, as Maxi said in the last podcast, how is my baggage? How is what I'm bringing to this interaction shaping the interaction? Perhaps, and do I need to kind of course correct or or you know reflexively kind of shift gear? Yeah. How is it landing with the patient? And, and you know, again, it's, it's, I come back to that point of we are both subject and object. We're embodied persons within our environmental context. So all of this seems like we're, we've really got to know our patients to make decisions about our patients, which seems obvious. The fact that we need to say that, or the fact that there are people doing podcasts about knowing patients and talking to patients and and really understanding patients suggested it kind of wasn't done before we could have done it better perhaps i think there are always clinicians who are very good and 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 just amazing at just doing it anyway it's like they were born to do it but i think educational programs when you look at a clinical reasoning paradigm and again it comes from history so you would take a history you wouldn't receive a history you would um or, or, con or construct a history of course yeah construct or co-construct it yeah so, you know, the, the, the body as machine paradigm is very strong in Western-based healthcare. And it, it helps us when the patient has lost their agency. But in a job which we're in, where we're trying to enable agency, it's, it's just not, not sufficient. So it's very good at trying to understand, okay, you know, here's, here's the patient who's lost their agency. If I take the history... And I can categorize all of their situations, circumstances, I can do the tests, and then I operationalize it. You know, it, it, it's, it comes from a biomedical paradigm, which may not be fit for purpose within the context of now. I think it is just recognizing that that had its place and it has its place when you're on a ventilator. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, but you've still got to deal with the family. You've still got to deal with, you know, as a consultant, intensive care. And, you know, I just, they've done, they're just amazing people. But, you know, um, they, they have to make critical decisions. So the way in which they look at evidence research practice is going to be different than, than we are within the physical therapy paradigm. Okay, So it's, re it's kind of recognizing that, 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 that difference 
Um, and, and what we're trying to enable in rehabilitation, we're enabling agency. We're not trying to save lives. Although in the long term, we improve quality of life and therefore may increase longevity of life, but that's not necessarily very easy to measure. But we're in that we're in a different game and we're not treating people as bodies. And so I think it's that shift toward a humanistic, whole person-based approach that that lends itself very well to us as physical therapists. It's embracing that psychological and social domain far more than we have in the past. Uh, and how do we access the psychological and social domain? We do so through language. We do so through interaction. And that's why the I think that the emphasis is now far more towards the stuff that you're bringing out here, Ollie, and I think that's why it's so important. In your chapter, you said evidence-based practice has been described as a map that creates guidelines for treatment or intervention. And you say evidence-based medicine may serve as a map, but it's not described the terrain. That was, I thought, was lovely. So what I took, what I took from that is that it do, the topography of clinical practice isn't decided by relatively simple kind of technical, rational maps, if you like. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And if we were to use that metaphor, the context of the person is the creates the terrain and your guide is the patient then it struck me that having a, a different conception of what what clinical practice is and a more professionally artistic view of clinical practice where it's practice is complex it's swampy there are ill-defined problems that it's value-laden it's context dependent that we're just making kind of value-laden judgments it's that recognition it's that different pair of glasses that we're now wearing and seeing practice differently recognizes the the sorts of evidence that can form that uh, that view of practice and the limitations with preceding forms of evidence that we were you know, wholeheartedly relying on when we view practice being pretty straightforward quite linear just you know billiard ball knocking after billiard ball after billiard ball and so it's that shift in 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 how we view practice it's an interesting way that you placed it, billiard ball after billiard ball after billiard ball. It's this kind of linear. If you've got, if you if you understand this, if this is your truth, then you'll then everything else just falls into place. What is the terrain of clinical practice? You know, how should we how should we view clinical practice? So the t- the terrain in practice for me is not trying to control for complexity. It's to acknowledge uncertainty. And it's bringing the totality of the ev- of, of the evidence together, and I think that brings with itself a humanistic artistry, and I think that that for me is a pillar of of expert practice. It's the ability to uh, recognise that clinical research is very important. It's to be able to bring the principles of research into your practice, but not to dictate it, and to um, first and foremost recognize a person's situation context and bring together the understanding with each other um, as a priority of what we do and that the person the patient guides the practitioner through the terrain so the terrain of practice mm-hmm. is really the acknowledgement of uncertainty the acknowledgement and uh, of um, complexity, and that that we're in it together, 
And there are some real mm. hallmarks of practitioners who, who are just excellent at being able to convey to patients that they're in it together, that it's not just this is the right way, this is the fix, I'm the expert, you're the patient, if you do what I tell you, you'll get better. It's this is a journey, we're both walking it together, the terrain will vary, it will undulate, there are going to be t- difficult times, there's going to be bumps in the road, and but you but know that I'm here for you, and I'll do the best I can for you, with you, and and and, and in all and for, for us to make progress down the road, what I will do for you is do the best I can in understanding how these external sources, such as the research, can be able to inform and make the road smoother down down the line. There's a few comments at the back of our last podcast that if you take that approach, that the risk is or misconception that the risk is, it, the patient just takes you where they want to go and just says, well, I just want to do this. And they kind of, they, di- they, they overly direct or overly control, and which may not be in their best interest. And so a sim- simple analogy might be a patient that requests or has a particular preference for an intervention, for example, manual therapy or manipulation, whatever it might be. And... Ooh you're desperately wanting to respect and incorporate their values and preferences in your reasoning. Maybe address that as a misconception of person-centered care, that that the patient gets whatever they want, but also maybe just comment on what we do do when patients' preferences or values aren't necessarily we would feel in their best interest. Yeah, So, so first of all, we seek to understand as clinicians. So why, why, Ollie, tell me, why do you, feel that manual therapy is so important to help your back problem get better i really value this particular intervention can i have it please because there's there's a then there's a bit of a potential for a collision yeah that the patient expresses a a wish and it's about managing and negotiating yeah well it's about understanding and i think and i'd say and then i would propose tentatively would if, if you know if we carried on the kind of the role play that, that I would be suggesting alternative. Would you would you feel comfortable in us suggesting an alternative? Because you've done that approach, you've tested that as a hypothesis. If we're going to be kind of scientific about it, you've tested that hypothesis, and it's not really standing up. Um, so I think we probably could, is it okay if we try a different approach? And and you know I'll be tentative about it, but I would be I'd be I would I would come to that conclusion. I'd say. Um, this this approach doesn't appear to be working for you. If it was an approach that you feel is absolutely fine and that that you would want to continue to to have that type of approach moving forwards, I think uh, I would then want to try to suggest some of the pitfalls and some of the downsides of using that approach, including um, time taken out of their lives for it, the expense of that, um, the lack of you know re- carryover success, you know, and then I would and then I'd suggest an alternative approach. And that is, um, and then hopefully that would open a window of opportunity to 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 lay at a later point when the mm. time feels right to discuss how strong and robust the spine is, and that manual therapy, the effects of manual therapy, is not in any way, shape, or form corrective. Uh, it doesn't slip or push anything back in or out, and in fact, it's anything. It's just it just allows a short-term pain relief, which often diminishes as you continue to have it over time. Mm. So, so, so the best way to move forward, depending on what their values and goals are, um, is to try, try, try an alternative. And that is, first and foremost, to have a different change in mindset 
because ultimately we're, we're negotiating a mindset which is completely passive, being fixed approach toward a much more active self-treatment based approach. And it's that the, the shift needs to come from an understanding of why is the um, the passive mindset continued. Now, there might be some good explanation for that. It might not be that, you know, well, actually, everything's going fine. I've had 150 sessions and I love it. Because I don't know many people who would say, look, 150 sessions of back, you know, you know, manipulation of my back, you know, it's been working out really good. Um, because they don't. They often, the majority of people, again, from my, this is in my life world. So, it, you know, I only see other people's patients, other pa- uh, therapists' patients by virtue of it not working out with them. So, of course, that's the, of its own, of itself, biased. So, but 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 the majority of people who do see different therapists do so because the approach isn't working. Yeah. Um. And and if they do have a particular uh, frame of reference, it's trying to understand where that frame of reference is coming from. And I'll give you another example. So, for you know, there there might be the situation where um they the the person is completely stressed out all the time. They don't have a moment to themselves. This is their only moment to share with somebody else in a different context. So it's not about the back pushing and the, it's the therapeutic relationship and the therapeutic touch. And there are, and it's trying to take the load off that person. I can, I kind of see that, but the idea of, I would want to very, very quickly have some form of agreement that manual therapy is not something that corrects and say, that's mm. not how I practice. That's not how I believe. And for us to, kind of move forwards together in this I, I need you to understand where I'm coming from yeah and I think that's a really good point that it's more than just acknowledging their preferences and values but really understanding where they come from so what what is it you value about that you know that intervention you know why is it you prefer it what are some of those beliefs which will inform that preference or that desire yeah. and it's not just a case of saying well you will oh, god values preferences got to got to incorporate that and in, in a contemporary evidence-based way they want it i'll give it to them but it's about acknowledging them but also trying to explore and starting a conversation around that and it, it might be the case you know it might be the case in some patients you do deliver that the, the inter, if it's safe and not harmful in the short term to develop some of that trust with the view that that the conversation continues mm. and you you shift them off into other other approaches so that sparked off another thought, actually, um, which is to recognise, so when you're asking patients about their various preferences or perspectives, understanding where it comes from, and say, is it okay if I just talk about whatever that is, let's say manual therapy, uh, and the history of it? So you could say, um, well, if you take us back 15 or 20 years, we used to believe that. We genuinely had the belief that when we do these types of interventions, they had these really specific biomechanical properties. Uh, by that, I mean shifting your joints, moving it, you know, putting things into mm. a better position. But we've moved on from that now, and we look at things in a very much different way. Are you happy for us to explore that further? You could do that again with exercise. So somebody comes in with transverse abdominis and, 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 and they're stiff as a board or whatever, and you say, would you mind if I just talk about the history of that particular intervention? It made sense to us 10 years, mm. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, actually. We're talking you know, 1990 now. But it, it made sense to us at that time for us to use that particular intervention. And it was based on this idea of that the spine is unstable. 
our understanding of the spine has completely changed now. And we know that the spine is really um, strong and robust um, and that uh, our understanding of pain is much more broader. And actually, we need to understand far more mm. broader context and, and better understanding of, yourse of, of, of yourself and, and for me to work with you on this in a completely different way. And that's and th so things have moved on. It, would you mind if I talk to you more about that? And the the benefit of, of that approach is that you are able to navigate that thorny issue of well, my my other therapist they you know you contradicting there's, there's that situation where you're directly contradicting or saying something in opposition to what they've been told by the other therapist, and it's often the case that they hold their other clinician in you know, high regard and. And you, you don't want to be seen, and it's, or rather, it's not helpful to to give the impression that you're cr criticizing them. But if you the way you phrase it is what we know as a kind of as a society or or the field as a community, what we now know as rather than saying your last therapist was wrong and stupid, you kind of outsource that, and it's not such a personal mm. um, confrontation, if you like, between between you and the other clinician. Absolutely. So it becomes more, uh, and and it's, it's it's understanding that there is a place for it, and 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 you could e equally say um, that in some situations, manual therapy can be a useful direction toward easing some of your symptoms. But it's we 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 as a community of practice um, know that it, it, it has very short term benefits, mm. um, and it's not very empowering for you to take control of the situation. What we tend to find when we look at some of the, of the research and what we find in practice is that the more control that people feel that they have over their own problem, the better outcomes they have and they're more able they are to achieve their goals and what they want to do. So, um, and an inherent part of, for example, back pain is, is that flare-ups are inevitable. When I say flare-ups, an increase in your symptoms. So I'd like to speak to you about that a little bit further, if that's okay. Yeah, it's those. It's, mm. those, it's, it's about those those types of conversations. So that straight away, that the other person is kind of going. First of all, this person kind of understands what he's on about. Second of all, well, it makes sense. Um, it, you know, it doesn't make sense for me to, as soon as my back hurts, to run to you know to get somebody else to to fix it all the time. And the third, the third one is that they've listened to me because. They've just mentioned some of the goals that were really important to me that I, I suggested to them, and they've listened and retained that, and and you know they they you're there in the moment with them, um, and that in itself just develops that relationship and trust, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, that's yeah really important both ways. I'm conscious of time. My little red clock is ticking past the hour. Um, <laughs> And in that time, I want you to, I want to push your book. What do we call it? Do we call it your book or your chapter or the book with your chapter? I would say, I would say push the book, I guess. I, I would push the book, push the book because it's the book. The book is brilliant. My chapter is a small part in it. But really that book is going to be, that should be, I hope it is core reading. I mean, it has to be core reading for all, let's say, MSK students. That has to be. I mean, that 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 needs to be part of curriculum, really, if we're going to, in, enhance the kind of philosophical basis of MSK care across the you know, professional spectrum, then that's the book to, to lead the way. Well, I'd like to think so, yeah. I think it'd be um, amazing if, this, if that could be a core text. Um, I think that'd be a fantastic 
movement in, in, in a direction that I think is better for, for everyone. So just remind the listeners the title of the book and where they can find it. The title of the book is Rethinking Causality, Complexity and Evidence for the Unique Patient. It's a cause health resource for healthcare professionals and the clinical encounter. If you look that up on a Google search, you'll see there'll be a link to uh, Springer, who is the publisher, and uh, you can get that open access. And there's uh, ways in which you, you could get hold of that through um, through Twitter. It's it's done very well being spread on the Twitter platform particularly. Matt, thank you so much for your time again. No problems. I hope it's been uh, a useful listen and it's been really good to speak to you again, Ollie. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.